Hello everyone and welcome to the latest Rev Them podcast. My name is Teodora Miljojkovic, I'm an assistant editor and today I have a great pleasure of hosting Professor Maria Popova. Maria Popova is an associate professor of political science at McGill University. Her work explores the rule of law and democracy in the post-communist region. Her first book, Politicized Justice in Emergent Democracies, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2012, examines the weaponization of law to manipulate elections and control the media in Russia and Ukraine in the 90s and early 2000s. It won the American Association for Ukrainian Studies Prize for Best Book in the Fields of Ukrainian History, Politics, Language, Literature and Culture. Her recent work has focused on judicial reform in Ukraine, the politics of corruption prosecution in Eastern Europe, conspiracies, democratic backsliding, and illiberalism. Her new book, co-authored with Oksana Shevel, entitled Russia and Ukraine, Entangled History's Diverging States, examines the root causes of the Russia-Ukrainian war and will be released in fall 2023 by Polity Press. Hello, Maria. It's a great pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Professor, I wanted to ask you, because today it is widely accepted that Ukraine belongs to the EU and that it deserves its membership. As we know, the Russian aggression might have prompted Ukraine's application to the EU, but even before the war, uh, Ukraine made important steps towards Europeanization. Uh, in one of your op-eds, I think it was Journal of Democracy, you emphasize Ukraine's pre-war achievements. I'm very interested in that. Could you tell our listeners more about Ukraine's transitional reforms before the war, so before everything started with the accession last year? So as you know, the Euromaidan revolution of uh, 2014 was really about Ukraine's path towards Europe. It was about Ukraine wanting to sign this association agreement uh, with the European Union, Russia objecting, and the pro-Russian government trying to stop this path. So as soon as the Yunukovych administration was ousted, uh, Ukraine's first task, the first task of the new government was to resume this path towards Europe, uh, which was then in the form of this association agreement. But the association agreement between the EU and, and Ukraine was really one of the, was unprecedented. It was one of the deep association agreements that had, that was multifaceted, and that included a conditionality component to it, which meant uh, that Ukraine uh, was taking on the responsibility of showing progress on certain areas of reform in order to move forward uh, with the trade uh, agreement, with the lifting of trade barriers, freedom of movement barriers, etc. So really, in the last eight years, in the eight years between 2014 and uh, the full-scale invasion by Russia in 22, Ukraine implemented a lot of reforms in many areas. Um, notably, in the area of judicial reform, they really tried to reset the entire uh, judiciary. There were constitutional amendments, new laws. Every single uh, institution was reconstituted. There were new institutions created both in judicial uh, reform and also in uh, anti-corruption um, efforts. So really, the last eight years were a series of institutional, legislative, 
and sort of cadre reforms all aimed towards preparing Ukraine for European uh, accession. So indeed, a lot of progress was done in those years. Yes, yes. So I feel it's it's important to emphasize this just so that it's clear that that Ukraine had this European vision for a very long time. So it's not like it it was prompted by war. And then when it comes to um these judicial reforms, I know that you wrote a lot and you researched a lot this topic, uh, especially in Ukraine, which not many scholars, uh, international scholars, I mean, not Ukrainians, uh, were engaged with. So. I was just wondering, as it seems from the discussions today, uh, judiciary and judicial reforms will be one of the critical steps in in Ukraine's uh, progress towards uh, the EU membership. Um, Could you tell us more what was the the vision for judiciary before the Russians attack and what, what do you think, will the war change somehow this institutional landscape of Ukraine? And uh, what will be the reforms necessary? Because now we have to take into consideration the occupied territories as well. Like how how do you think that these um, judicial reforms will be implemented when uh, hopefully all, all of this is over and Ukraine can uh, move forward to to further uh, implementation of, of conditions for EU uh, membership? So one of the difficulties of the post-Maidan period in terms of judicial reform was that a lot of uh, the institutional changes that were implemented did not necessarily prompt a decisive change in uh, judicial behavior, but in fact uh, were met with quite a bit of resistance from within the judiciary, from entrenched networks within the judiciary that wanted to actually protect the status quo rather than to move towards creating a judiciary that is a guarantor of the rule of law and is politically independent and uh, controls corruption, both in other branches, but also within its own branch. So in fact, in the eight post-Maidan years, we had a situation where uh, judicial reform was really driven by civil society by organizations that were dedicated to monitoring how judicial reform goes forward, um, helped by um, the process of EU conditionality, by international partners, but there was significant resistance from within the judiciary. What the 2022 full-scale invasion may be changing here is the landscape within the judiciary itself. Now, we know that since the full-scale invasion, some judges have uh, volunteered or are fighting at the front. We know that some uh, judges who are really uh, connected to the pro-Russian networks of influence have uh, left the country. We know uh, that the war has had a fundamental effect on the entirety of the Ukrainian state and Ukrainian society, making it even more united than before in terms of motivation to uh, make sure that Russian influence is uh, neutralized. So in the area of judicial reform, what we can expect is actually the appearance of an internal constituency within the judiciary that is motivated to push reforms forward. And if such a constituency emerges and consolidates within the judiciary, the success of these reforms is likely to be much greater because there will be synergy between 
the civil society organizations that are pushing for these reforms, uh, the international partners who are also pushing for these reforms, and the judiciary itself, which is going to be the subject of these reforms. So I think that's the window of opportunity uh, that we have right now. And and I think in the in the next uh, couple of years, we're going to see how widely open that window of opportunity is. Yes, yes, how it plays out. Because it's very interesting that um, you mentioned that before the attack, so there was this internal uh, resistance from the judiciary. One of our other interviews, uh, Nino Tseretelli, was discussing Georgian case, which was very similar when it comes to this um, internal uh, lack of independence within the judiciary and these political pressures. So my question is, because I, I know you also conduct research on um, other post-communist countries, and especially countries which are within the accession procedure. Do you think that EU should somehow change its conditionality framework? And um, more specifically, should the criteria stemming from the Copenhagen criteria, should should the, the rules and, and uh, the requirements that the EU asks from these countries, should they be somehow differently framed or perhaps differently implemented? Because as we as we see now, there are many legal and political realities that that we are facing with with these new countries accessing and not just new countries that Moldova. I mean, by that, I mean, uh, most recent Moldova and Ukraine, but also, for example, Georgia, which is trying to obtain uh, the, the candidacy status and also the Balkan countries, which have been on this path for a very long time. So, so do you think that this, let's say, this this uh, framework somehow needs to be changed? Because it seems, for example, in Balkan countries, uh, that everything was very Potemkin village-like. So that was the problem that the conditions are met uh, on paper, but the legal culture somehow uh, remains. And do you think that perhaps the war and and uh, this new democratic will for democracy and for joining Europe in Ukraine could change the legal culture? that was there before and differentiated somehow from these other accession countries? Yeah, this is a really good question. And it's a very important issue to consider sort of how to build on institutional uh, reforms, which are following best practices and are indeed very useful to creating an independent judiciary, but how to build on them further by by actually uh, making sure that the judicial independence that is achieved structurally by setting up the judiciary in a way that makes it in some ways an institutional fortress, how to make sure that this institutional fortress is then used for the right purpose, uh, which is the delivery of impartial uh, justice, the delivery of adjudication of political disputes, which is uh, not governed by political relationships and collusion, but governed by interpreting the law in good faith. So it's a problem and it's an issue that affects not only the, the new candidate countries that are trying to achieve membership, but uh, many of the current EU members. It's a similar problem where we have judiciary, which is institutionally insulated, but their independence is actually uh, used as a shield to protect judicial elites from uh, basically abusing their office and 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 using it for corporate and for pushing through political interests. 
So, so I think the way to get out of this, um, or to to try to get out of this problem, is to actually start paying more attention to the kinds of people that are put in crucial positions affecting judicial reform. International organizations have long had, and and the U.S., for example, has long had this maxim where they explicitly say that what they promote is the institutions and they don't look at who the individuals are. I think there has to be some evaluation on that front, re-evaluation on that front, that institutions are no doubt highly important and they're very important for the sustainability of reform. So attention uh, should, of course, be given to institutional building. But there should be also attention to who is actually selected to be the inaugural uh, incumbent for many of these institutions, that it does matter who the people in place are, uh, that, for example, uh, having a long track record in civil society, trying to push through judicial reform is probably a good signal that these people are motivated that they're socialized within the ethos of the ideas. And it's important to actually pay close attention to who will be driving reform forward. That should start uh, to be on on the top of the agenda of the European partners. Uh, they've had, I think, some lessons from Bulgaria and Romania, for example, that in Romania, it did matter when uh, Laura Kovici was in charge of the anti-corruption prosecution. Bulgaria instituted similar institutions, but they didn't achieve anything. Because as you mentioned, they were more used like a Potemkin uh, village as a facade. So it's important to start thinking about how to make sure that these institutions are not facades, but actual vehicles for change. And the way to do that is to start thinking about who is staffing them. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. But there is, uh, I see a problem there which was uh, visible already in some other countries. So, for example, how can the EU assess who is, who is good for these positions? Because on one hand, they're not, that's the problem of the EU being this technocratic uh, establishment that they're not really familiar with the national realities on one hand. And on the other hand, if they install international experts, which also often is the case, then we have a problem. Like, for example, um, I saw a lot of arguments in terms of uh, Albanian judicial reforms, which is prompted by by the accession. We see that that then if the international experts are leading the process there is not enough democratic will and democratic support for the reform, which is crucial for its success. So this is, um, I think this is a huge problem because we are asking the question how, how much EU is united in terms of these uh, societal circumstances and not just legal and uh, organizational. So, so for example, and, and in that regard, um, as I, uh, I think I read in uh, Ukraine, there is a problem now because of this suggestion that international experts will be uh, somehow contributing to the appointment of constitutional court judges. So what do you think about this uh, and generally about this debate? Do you think that's a good solution specifically for Ukraine, but also more broadly for other accession countries? So especially for a country which is currently in war and which will 
hopefully get out of the war? Do you think that international experts should be there? Because there are also, like, for example, Bosnian example, uh, after the war, um, there were international experts guiding the whole process, but there were serious problems after that because of that. So, so what do you think about that? Absolutely. It's a, it's a tricky balance to be struck between trying to have international partners relying on their judgment on who to empower domestically. Absolutely, there are potential problems in it. But in the Ukrainian case specifically, uh, the debate about international uh, experts has been going on for a while. Ukrainian civil society has seen the international experts as a shield against entrenched domestic interests who may otherwise seek to veto or hamstring the process and uh, push through their own selected candidates. So civil society saw the international experts as allies as opposed to, to the source of the decision making, uh, but basically allies to the civil society organizations. Now um, that civil society in Ukraine um, has probably gained even more stature uh, during the war as they have started cooperating with uh, state institutions uh, because now there's an external enemy as opposed to the state being sort of the internal enemy of civil society. I think the role of international experts may be somewhat uh, reevaluated, but for now, I think they would still prefer international experts to be involved in order to sort of provide a balance of power between the different domestic uh, interests and provide some sort of check potentially. Now, I think it's important to have sort of a targeted approach in different countries and sort of think about what the main source of a potential paralysis is in a given country. I think it's definitely very important to keep in mind that international experts are not going to have the silver bullet. They're not more knowledgeable than local experts. They're not more um, necessarily more honest, more committed to the rule of law. Um, so I think the way to think of them is not as these carriers of justice from outside, but as a potential additional actor in a, in a process that's going to have a lot of checks and balances and uh, will require significant consensus to move forward. Because if there are different representatives from uh, different domestic interests and from the international partners and from civil society, the chances are that this will create enough fragmentation that it is possible to come up with a consensus figure that is not going to be anybody's top choice, but uh, would, would be constrained from all sides. That is somewhat of a uh, increases the chances of having an impartial and uh, dedicated figure to uh, to continued reforms. So I think the way to think about the role of the international experts is not as these advisors, as having the upper hand, but as an additional actor inserted in the process. Yes, yes. No, I mean, uh, I guess that was the initial uh, initial idea of every of these reforms, but somehow that uh, that uh, twist is out 
in reality. But my question is also besides the, because you're, you, you are experts in judicial reforms, but you also work on other topics in relation to transitional regimes. So my question is, what do you think after the war, what will be the other sector which will need a serious, let's say, reform in order for, for Ukraine to adapt to, to this new EU reality? As you researched Ukraine before the war, you're well familiar with the, with the context, just to, to, to give a broader picture on what is lacking, what is else lacking there, which needs to be, let's say, bettered in order to, to, to reach this EU accession. So, of course, another major issue on the agenda is uh, control of corruption. That's something that Ukraine, again, had already started making progress on. For example, in the, in the eight years uh, between Euromaidan and the full-scale invasion, they really reformed the public tenders system. They instituted uh, a, a transparent system for public tenders that saved the state a lot of money. They instituted um, income declarations for state uh, office holders and for politicians. Those were enforced. People who misrepresented their assets uh, were indeed then investigated and some of them prosecuted. So, so there was a lot of progress on this. Uh, they also started uh, right in the run-up to the full-scale invasion, the process of uh, de-oligarchization. Uh, so there was an attempt by the Zelensky administration to sort of decouple oligarchs from politics through transparency, basically by, by forcing people who were uh, identified by the criteria of the law as oligarchs to basically uh, divest from their political tools, uh, such as media. And those steps are going to have to continue in order to make sure that uh, the massive funds coming uh, for reconstruction after the war will be going to proper use uh, rather than uh, to fuel uh, corruption. And, and I think actually in, in a lot of ways, the war has sped up uh, this process. Uh, we've seen, for example, that in the beginning of the war, when aid, uh, military aid and other aid started flowing to Ukraine, there were a lot of articles about how given Ukraine's high level of corruption, we're likely to see arms smuggling. We're likely to see funds disappearing. There was a lot of articles written, and most of them were talking about fears of these things happening, you know, predicting on, uh, on track record, so to speak. But now, more than a year, a year and a half into this war, we see that there aren't really any uh, major stories about arms smuggling. So it seems that this, the Ukrainian state has proven itself to be strong enough to make sure that these arms are going to uh, the right purpose. There have been some, some scandals with diversion of funds and, and potentially misuse of funds or, or uh, graft. But the, the encouraging part is that these cases have been exposed, the institutions have been put into gear to try to punish those who were engaged in, in them. So they will become a cautionary tale for others who may be considering setting up these uh, corruption schemes. So I think things are moving in the right direction. 
what has to happen is two things. First, they have to continue to move in, in that direction as uh, the Ukrainian economy sort of reorients to uh, Europe and and the majority of uh, Ukrainian oligarchs actually internalize the message that for them to continue to be successful as businessmen, they will have to play by European rules. And also what has to happen is for Europe to actually uh, be able to recognize progress when it does happen. So it's important to, to both monitor, but also not to be overly committed to the stereotype of Ukraine as a corrupt country and to be able to see that when corruption is in fact not happening, we should be recognizing that it's not happening. So certainly it remains to be seen the direction in which uh, Ukraine is going to go. But I think the last year has been sort of optimistic and it's and it's in fact um reflected in some of the opinion polls that i've seen for example in in uh, 2021 there were only 4% of ukrainians who based on their experience living in their own country thought that corruption was sort of on the decline and things were moving in the right direction there were only 4% and in, in 2022, that number is 29%. So a third of Ukrainians now see an improvement. And the polls are also showing that smaller proportion of Ukrainians report personally having encountered corrupt schemes within the state. So um, it's important to monitor where things go and hope that uh, things will continue developing in a positive direction. Yes, I, I, great. I think it's important to emphasize that there are actually there is evidence. So there are pools that are that are saying this. So it's not just um, predictions. But uh, I'm interested now that you mentioned these uh, stereotypes of these uh, corrupted accession post-communist countries. My question is: once uh, these countries hopefully do acquire uh, membership, I mean uh, Ukraine, Moldova, and also Balkan countries, do you think there will be some? Um, change of of this nature of the eu will this this um idea of west that we have usually that we usually couple with the the idea of the eu will that have to change somehow or or simply these countries will culturally legally and politically have to somehow fit into this western eu framework well, it's a, it's a very good and, and big question. I think one of the effects of the 2022 uh, war has been sort of a change of gravity, of the point of uh, gravity within the EU. Uh, it has shifted slightly to the east. The Eastern European members of the EU have shown that geopolitically they had the right instincts uh, and the West didn't. They have shown that they're ready to support uh, Ukraine. As you remember, you know, the first countries that supported uh, Ukraine back in the spring were the Central European countries. The first people who visited Kiev as it was besieged were the prime ministers of the Central European countries. And, and they triggered, you know, Western Europe sort of thinking, well, maybe Ukraine is worth supporting. Maybe they can actually effectively resist here. The leadership was definitely in the East. And I think that leadership will 
spill over in terms of other EU-wide issues where Eastern European positions will have to be respected a bit more uh, than they were before. Eastern European warnings that uh, European states have to be careful about uh, Russian hybrid warfare and potential uh, Russian infiltration of European states to try to undermine uh, European unity. I mean, basically, the Eastern Europeans are leading on this. And, and there is evidence coming out that in Western Europe, we have some of this infiltration because their guard was lower. So I think that will have a certain uh, effect on the EU, but but I think still Eastern on on issues uh, such as uh, rule of law and 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 corruption and democracy and maintenance of civil and political rights, uh, the EU will will have to be united. And the Eastern European countries that are not meeting some of these uh, thresholds will have to uh, meet them. But the debate will be going on at a European EU-wide uh, level. And it's important to have, I mean, basically, it's funny because in some way, Putin uh, is making these arguments about multipolarity uh, in the world, which are, of course, totally disingenuous. But in some ways, the, the Russian uh, attack on Ukraine has had the effect of creating multiple poles within the EU that are going to work uh, better together in in uh, uh, negotiating sort of the future direction of the EU and and I think that has been a good thing for the EU overall. Yes, definitely. Uh, we this is something that hasn't been discussed that much, at least this angle. But maybe uh, especially this decline that we see in the liberal regimes of uh, our called liberal regimes of Poland and Hungary is that obviously they uh, they are um it's a problem but on the other hand it's also a warning that we indeed need to start thinking deep more deeply about the values and ideas of the of the EU uh and not just for that now we discussed the, the responsibility of the EU as uh, institutions and the officials and the politicians but now lastly that we are approaching the end of the interview I wanted to ask you what do you think is the the scholarly responsibility in all of this because um we know that you have been very active uh because I I remember I read that you you said it's uh it's interesting uh feeling to have your topic becoming the hot topic overnight so so my question is uh, what is your experience in that because this is like a re- discussing analyzing the war is a very as it's going, as it's playing out, it's a very tricky, I would say, endeavor. So, so how do you feel in this role? That's one thing. And and the second question would be, uh, what is the scholarly responsibility, not just of scholars who are researching Ukraine, but also EU scholars, rule of law scholars, judicial independence scholars? So how should we bridge this gap between our academic debates and actual reality? Because now we see that that our research does does have value and importance and we need to somehow dem- democratize our findings and bring them to the wider audience absolutely i i firmly believe that scholars have in fact absolutely have a responsibility to be active participants in public discourse on the topics in which they research and of course there is a risk of sort of simplifying your research, simplifying your findings, 
There's also a risk of making predictions that, of course, are going to turn out not to be true. But I think it's very important to bring the level of discourse higher by by intervening, sharing data, uh, sharing takes that are informed by wider and deeper knowledge, because there is so much misinformation out there, so many bad takes that they require countering. I mean, sometimes I spend a lot of time countering takes that are very manifestly wrong. And I know that there is absolutely no chance that the person who is making these claims is going to be convinced by anything I say. But I think it's still very, very important to have this countered for the record because people are reading. You know, we we see the debate on social media unfold by, by a lot of different accounts arguing with each other. But the people reading... Uh, we don't see those. And that's a lot of people. And I know I've, I've gotten emails that, that say so. I know that people sometimes do change their minds when they read something that's informed and that is based in, in uh, deeper or wider research. So I think there's absolutely a responsibility for scholars to engage on social media, to talk to journalists, uh, especially because our research allows us to examine things sort of beyond uh, the simple stereotype. And very often, journalists who report on the, on the current uh, affairs and jump from topic to topic are going to reach for the, for the most basic uh, approach. And very often, the most basic approach is informed by stereotypes. And, and so it's important to provide the nuance, provide the context, push back if necessary. And, and I think scholars are in a perfect position uh, to do that. And, and there is definitely a responsibility to do that. It's wonderful that, that you mentioned that you got these emails because that's very um, inspiring. And actually that, that, that pushes us forward. Uh, I mean, this interview is one of these attempts, I guess, to, to simply inform the public. Um, thank you so much, Professor. Thank you so much. Uh, this was a. Uh, um, I like that this was quite an optimistic interview, and we are ending on a positive note. And I hope that we will, um, in a few months or years, have even more positive and optimistic things to to discuss when it comes to Ukraine and the EU, but also other um, other countries which regard your research. Thank you so much for being our, our guest today. Thanks for having me. I'm sure we will have uh, plenty of other opportunities to, to talk about where things have gone and, and how accurate some of the predictions were. Yes, yes. We'll be, we'll be here to definitely uh, inform on that. Thank you so much.